This is Anne Fremantle, introducing Dr. Margaret Mead over WBAI for PEN Pen. Pen is an independent international association of writers. The initials, PEN, stand for poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists, and by punning implication of the initials for all writers. Pen exists to promote worldwide friendship and intellectual cooperation among men and women of letters. Pen has no politics but it is against the imprisonment of writers for political reasons, and in the Penn Charter, Penn members pledge themselves to, quote, oppose any suppression of freedom of expression in the country and the community to which they belong. Penn is therefore against all censorship of the written word. Penn now has 82 centers in 60 countries of Africa, Asia, Europe, North and South America, and Australia. World membership of Penn is around 10,000. American Penn has about 1,500 members, and its headquarters are in New York, but the 1,500 members come from all over the United States. Its headquarters is at 156 Fifth Avenue. Membership is by invitation from the membership committee and is extended to published writers of demonstrative accomplishment. Penn is a purely literary association and assists writers in many practical ways, with copyright problems, with insurance problems, with getting better deals for translators, and helping young writers become better known by giving prizes and by promoting meetings in different countries and by honoring both American writers and writers from other countries. Now here is Dr. Margaret Mead, probably the greatest living anthropologist, and she is going to talk about the way primitive peoples uh, react to death. We are having a series of four programs about death because April is the cruelest month, as T.S. Eliot said, and Dr. Margaret Mead, whose latest book is World Enough, published by uh, Little Brown, World Enough, and her earlier, um, she has read it in many, many books. One of the loveliest is Blackberry Winter, and that's published by Morrow. But now, Dr. Mead, could you say uh, something about how uh, primitive peoples face death? Well, you know, you have the greatest variety in the world among primitive people. Uh, civilized people are getting less and less different from each other. So one finds people who, for whom death is a major preoccupation, and in some ways you might say they spend their lives preparing for death. There are other people who uh, want to make as little of it as possible. There are American Indian tribes who speak of man as being like grass that grows up in the morning and is mowed down in the evening. Uh, you find uh, people uh, not uh, the Balinese aren't really primitive, but they're an exotic traditional people who spend a great deal of their lives dealing with death, uh, trying to, there are people who believe in reincarnation. So theoretically, they shouldn't be worried about death at all because people are going to be reborn in their family three generations later. But getting rid of the body is a terrific preoccupation. So they make an, they bury the dead, and they exhume them and cremate them, and they p then pound the ashes up, and then they make another figure, and then they b uh, often burn that or put it in a boat and send it out to sea, and then 42 days later they do it again with one performance after another trying to eliminate the body so that the human b creature can return again. And so the spirit can be free of the body, body. of that body. And they find that very hard to do. Now, there are other people who uh, may almost abandon the bodies of the dead and move to some other place. 
there are many places where the uh, house or teepee or shelter that the dead lived in are destroyed at death. There are many places also where if they have few possessions, they may be buried with them. The more possessions they have, the less likely they are to be buried with them. <laughs> but it, there are people who are already coming to the stage that the Egyptians were in at the time mm -hmm. of Tutankhamen, for instance. I mean, the, well, they, they do bury... It's probably very old. I think one of the best speculations about it is that back in the period when people couldn't carry their sick with them uh, because they were so burdened themselves and maybe very hungry, they would leave a sick person, expecting them to die, and leave food with them and, you know, weapons oh, or yes. whatever they had, and they'd come back and find them gone because that person hadn't died, had recovered and picked them off up and gone with them. And there, there's some speculations that this was one of the first intimations of immortality. That's very interesting. Do, 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 they, uh, do some tribes believe in immortality and some not? Yes, there's some people that have virtually no belief in immortality at all. There are others for whom immortality is very important. I worked with one people, the Mammoth of the Admiralty Islands, for whom the Im recently dead are almost more vivid than the living. Uh, they keep the skull of the last dead male relative in the house, and he protects people until another male dies because he didn't protect them well enough. Then they pitch that skull out, and they put his skull in, and then he's very much around as a ghost for quite a while. I, in, I lived in that village in 1928, and the ghost of the man uh, in whose house site I lived is quite real to me. I have to pinch myself to know that I never saw him because I even know what kind of tobacco he smoked. Mm -hmm. And then you get news from the other world. The ghosts get married. Uh, women who die are immediately snapped up. There's, it's a place where there's a shortage of women. Occasionally, there are children born on the other world. If s some medium needs some explanation for something, they can just produce a child. And, and so you have a very lively life for a little while. And then these ghosts are replaced. There are no, they stay around as a sort of a genealogical myth for a bit, and then they become sea slugs. There's no notion of, of complete long-time long immortality at all. Of course, they're very much, in, even in the, in the great traditions, there are various ideas, aren't there, of any kind? I mean, Buddhism has no, uh, the, the Buddhist ideal is to have no uh, further incarnations. And uh, if, if, you ma if you make it, then this is your last life. And uh, mm. on the other hand, Christianity Im Im impresses it wants, wants another life. Right. And I suppose that those were variations in, um, among primitive peoples too. Yes, and one of the things that you get is the um, sort of institutionalization of the ambivalence that people feel towards the dead, because almost all people feel a hostility towards the dead, if only because they've died and left them, and also grief. Now, in some societies, you suppress one. You see, among the Eskimo, you can must be pleasant and happy and sit and talk happily and with the corpse in the room. In other places, only the hostility is, is expressed, and you get rid of the dead as quickly as possible. The mourners hold on to thongs and then cut them so they cut, cut the connections between themselves and between the spirit. Um, in the one tribe in the Philippines, the Bagobo, they had two souls. One soul went to a lovely place where the sweet potatoes were the size of uh, pumpkins and had <laughs> a very good time, and the other soul 
was one they were af afraid of and hated that was punished after death. That's another way of dealing with it. And of course, we insist on the grief and suppress any expression of hostility towards the dead. And do you think that all these expressions and suppressions are the result of biology being history, as Freud said about women? Or do you think that it's uh, a trying to come up sides with the only absolute certainty we have? Well, I think that we can say, you know, that human beings have something that's been called a cosmic sense by Edith Cobb or a cosmological sense by Borston, uh, a need to make sense of the universe, that this is a deep human need. It's part of our humanity. And of course, life and death are the principal mysteries that affect human beings in the universe, in which there's also the sun and the moon and the stars and the tides and other things that we have to learn about. So that death is, but birth, you see, is equally a mystery. So I, I think, I don't think one should ever think of, of death as separated from birth. That w people may emphasize one more than the other. They may believe in reincarnation or they may not. But the mystery of a human being appearing, full-blown, a creature with identity is as great a mystery. Do you think for us who see lambs born in the spring that look like, looking like sheep, uh, I mean, uh, we we are surely less concerned with birth because it's it's uh, it's a repetition of what is already there. Well, we think we understand birth at present, you know, and we put it all in a hospital and hand it over to gynecologists and obstetricians who treat birth as if it was a surgical procedure. But um, if people who didn't treat birth the way we do but who treated it as a human event and not as a surgical enterprise, uh, birth was also very mysterious. And the, the period of gestation and before the child was born and when it would be born and who it would be, because especially if you believe in reincarnation, the question of who that child is is important. And whose it is, too. And I mean, Well, whose it is, you know, came in pretty late in history. Really? That's... That's one discovery that we can be sure women made, that paternity could only have been discovered by women. That's very interesting. And of course, it is the, it, what establishes in, in Judaism. You aren't Jewish unless your mother's Jewish. Exactly. It doesn't matter but who your father is. That's right. <laughs> and is, uh, the, uh, is that uh, enormous emphasis um, on whose you are and who you are, is that in primitive peoples too? Is that yes, you find yes. when, uh, if they're hurting people, they're extremely interested in maleness and paternity. If they're gardening people, on the whole, they're more interested in matern maternity and women as the fertile members of society, so that you get uh, a balance between the herding men who are very impressed by bull camels and the people who are impressed with the fertility of the plants and the soil and the mother goddesses and the mother earth and women who give birth. That's very interesting. And do the uh, primitive peoples teach their children about death? I, after all, in, uh, in our society, um, there's uh, a moment in every child's life when the pet mouse dies or the grandmother or somebody, and one is face to face with t telling one's child or one's uh, niece or nephew or someone uh, about the facts of death. And children accept it in, in our society enormously uh, simply, I think. I well, remember my little grandson saying to me, 
uh, about uh, when I was older. Well, you'll be dead by then. You know? Well, when they say that, but they, I don't think they quite know what they're saying. I, I still remember the little boy who said to his mother, people die, yes, do dogs die, yes, do cats die, do houses die? She said, no, I wish I was a house. Mm. I, I think that, I don't think children accept it so easily. Are not their own, but they are the, other, the older people, don't you think? Well, no, I think when they say you'll be dead by then, they're stating a historical fact that they've heard from other people. But you see, our children may not experience death for years, or it may only be a goldfish uh, that's put in the garbage pail, and they may not have any experience of human death, some people, until they're middle-aged, and then their old parents die. Yes. But in a primitive village, society, yeah. a primitive society, village society, any ordinary community where children are par part of it, they've seen people die, and most of them have seen people they didn't care about die, before they saw somebody they did care oh, about. That's now, obviously very important. If that hasn't it? happened, you know, and you have a very small child with the death of a parent, then they're extra desolate, just as children are here. But if they've experienced a great deal of death beforehand, they can handle it more easily. And what do you think about the uh, people in countries which have been in which have been primitive, but which are now? Uh, coming, being rapidly what we call civilized, and which obviously um, is is our point of view about them, um, is it? Do they make? Uh, uh, is it difficult for them to give up their early beliefs? Well, you're likely to get them transmuted. You know, they'll be uh, converted to Christianity, and they'll give up their old death practices. Possibly a great deal of destruction of property, for instance, the missionaries will persuade them not to do that. But 25 or 30 years later, you may find that they've invented some new way of destroying property. And so that my mama's people today uh, p pile a great deal of clothing in, into the coffin, good clothing. Now, 20 years ago, they put the, the, the clothing on the corpse and they took it off. But then people, then they gave it away in a distribution. And that meant that your good shirt that you had given away in grief was being worn by somebody you didn't like. <laughs> and to settle that quarrel, they now actually sacrifice all these clothes, which of course is uneconomic. So the, the fight between expensive funerals has gone on for thousands of years. So periodically, you'll get a reformer who will forbid tremendous uses, a destruction of property at death. And for a while that may, uh, you know, work and then back it may come again. Do some people still um, uh, uh, eat their dead? No. Yes, there are people who, it was a form of interment, yes. especially nomadic people, yes. you know, who didn't want to leave their dead, especially children. Yes. And that but still goes it, on. It, well, it's probably very little left. There some places in the center of New Guinea where there may be a trace of cannibalism still, but every form of cannibalism disappears almost at once in the, fa in the face of disapproval. It's something that hu human beings evidently have a natural repugnance to, and the minute they're given an ethical sanction, they'll give it up. That's very interesting. Because in a funny way, uh, so many of our great rituals uh, I mean, our great religious rituals are more or less cannibalistic, aren't they? Well, I, mean I don't, you know, I don't think it helps very much to call them cannibalistic. 
I think it's much more a tremendous sharing. And the, to use the phrase cannibalistic for religious mis uh, rituals, I don't find very helpful. I've seen cannibals. Most <laughs> of the people that use these figures have never seen a cannibal. <laughs> no, that's quite true. I haven't. Um, but now, tell me, uh, for instance, in when I was in China, I was very surprised that the um, uh, present regime allows the people who left, who went off to Taiwan or to Hong Kong, to come back on what is their equivalent of All Souls Day, the Day of the Dead, mm. and then they light um, little boats on a on water, and uh, they send the dead off, or anyway, the the lights all over the river, and, and they have this enormous feeling. Even uh, has nothing to do with the political regime, and the political regime respects it very much. Is it true now? Is that generally true of regimes? I mean, in Africa, which you know. Very well, some regimes will make a part of their ideology, you know, getting rid of funeral ceremonies and spending a lot on them. Uh, the, as I understand what the Chinese have done, they are encouraging people in a great variety of ways towards cremation, but they're not forcing it. Uh, you can still bury your dead if you want to, but if you cremate them, you get a great deal more help in one way or another from the state. So it's a very gentle persuasive attempt uh, to get people to move in another direction. Well, I think that's very true. I think they certainly encourage cremation in every way, and, and who doesn't? But uh, on the other hand, they do encourage also the memory of the dead, that, that people should come back and, and uh, you know, have their little ceremonies. Well, and when you consider how terribly important the relationship to the ancestors were, it's perfectly reasonable that some encouragement should be given them. Oh, certainly. But is that so still in, in, in Africa, for instance? Well, uh, you can't make a statement about Africa. You go from place to place, place. and in some places where Christi some places Christianity will have fought very hard against some pagan custom in terms of what they do with the dead. And another point place it won't. So you can't make any, you really can't make any general statement about primitive people, you know, Anne, except that they are pre-literate and don't depend on a written language. And that also they, t they, uh, they have an enormous sense of relationships, which is sometimes lost by the rest of us, no? Isn't, isn't that the whole life of the tribe, uh, I think it was Rabindranath Tagore who said all reality is relationship. And I, I would have, I mean, I'm just asking you, isn't it true that, that one of the things that is emphatic about all primitive peoples is the reality of, of relationship well, to, but to the living and the dead? Well, there's some people, as I've just said, who have a very slight relationship to the dead. There's some that have a very slight relationship to the physical environment, some a very important one. No, I'd, and there's some that where if you have no living relatives, you're very lost and unhappy and other places where you're such a strong member of the group, it doesn't matter whether you have close relatives or not. No, I don't think we can even make that kind of generalization. You know, people like the Eskimo, a single family will go off for months and months by themselves, just a man and woman and a child. And they're perfectly self-sufficient unless they meet disaster. But after a while, they get bored and they say, let's go and see people. How extraordinary. Now, that, that we never do, really. I mean. Even the nuclear family hardly lives that no, isolated. No, can't live that isolated. Can't live that isolated. Absolutely true. No, and um, we haven't time for many more questions, but I've, uh, I do want to ask you one or two more. One is, does religion 
in your mind, in your idea, does it help in, in the face of death? We were, we were wondering when we were discussing uh, religion and death, uh, whether actually it makes any difference at all. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the relationship of the human being to death is a one-to-one -one relationship. And does what you believe? Well, certainly I think it helps enormously the survivors. Ah. Whether it helps the, um, the person dying. who's dying or not, people die under many different ways, out of stoicism, out of uh, contentment that they're leaving things to their descendants. Uh, you know, there are many forms of immortality. But certainly a religious ritual that unites the mourners to each other and permits them to relate to the fact of death and to grieve is very important. And one of the terrible things about our society, and this extends to Britain and a good part of Western Europe also, see that we don't give permission to people to grieve anymore. Whereas the old customs where you put a bit of black crepe on the door and people knew when they came and brought food to the house of mourning and people, and in the Jewish faith, you know, you didn't say shalom because there was no peace in that house I didn't when know you that. came. That's beautiful, yeah. But you gave people little sweetmeats so that their lips wouldn't tremble as they talked. Uh, this sort of thing is simply embraces the, the bereaved living and holds them together. And I think this is one of the things that we've lost. It's very serious in this country. People go back to work the next day. They go around looking cheerful. Of course, they don't wear any mourning. There isn't any way other people can know. And uh, our whole emphasis has been on the denial of grief. And I think that is a terrible thing. For the survivors. For the survivors. Yes, and I think also it, it, it takes an enormous amount of pleasure out of, of uh, uh, looking, looking at death because there is a great pleasure in the splendor of the liturgy. I mean, there was, at any rate. I mean, those wonderful, silly French pont funèbre, you know, when the horses had mm -hmm. black ostrich feather plumes, and there was something rather splendid, so that you, you, you had a kind of reassurance that human beings could make even the skeleton and the decomposition and the whole bag of nastinesses. They could even make that. It gave you a feeling that, that the human being could, could triumph somehow. Oh. Don't you think? Oh, and I think many people console themselves with a picture of what their funeral would be. Oh, you know, yes. planning a funeral, planning it, and planning what they'd wear, and planning and what also what they were go their th uh, possessions were going to be given to other people. These are all a way of making people uh, face aging with dignity. Yes. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been very helpful and very interesting to hear how primitive peoples face death. Dr. Margaret Mead has been talking over WBAI under the auspices of Penn. Her latest book, World Enough, is published by Little Brown. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Margaret Mead.